I thought that was pretty profound from a, a fourth grade girl. You know, I'm here, God says. I'm here. Well, today we're continuing our series of messages. And again, I apologize for you not having the sermon notes. One of the things that's frustrating about that is that we put about 20 man hours between myself, Brandon, and the office staff and volunteers, about 20 man hours to put those bulletins together for you. So, so that's... Uh, so. Dwayne, just get over it, okay? So I have to let that go. So today we're talking about the courage to stand in a fallen world. Not only did Jeremiah have the courage to stand in a very broken uh, Middle Eastern culture, but we as Christ followers in 2013 desire to be able to stand with courage and with fortitude uh, in front of everything that may come before us. So we're talking today about Reformation then and now. There was a great need for reformation in Jeremiah's day. There's a tremendous need for reformation in our world today. And uh, we want to talk about that for the next few moments. So I'm going to begin by reading Jeremiah chapter 7. And that's where we'll be spending our time today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have your iPhones, your iPads, you want to turn to Jeremiah 7, we welcome you to do that. Jeremiah 7, uh, verses 3 through 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. When you read that, you go, Wow, you kind of get a shudder. Because so often in our world today, we hear things such as, You know, well, I go to church, I go to church, I go to church, you know, I read my Bible, I read my Bible, I read my Bible, and Somehow, some way, Jeremiah is telling the people of Israel, and I think the Holy Spirit wants to tell us today that there must be more than just words. So, Reformation. We think about that, and my immediately, and I, you know me, I love history, immediately go back to the 6th century, 16th century in Europe. So, it was a, it was a mess. The Holy Roman Empire had swept over all of Europe, and almost every European country was Roman Catholic. Now, when I'm saying this historically, please don't hear me criticizing the Catholic Church today. I am criticizing, and all historians do, criticize the Holy Roman Empire of 500 years ago. So, uh, in that mess, uh, there had been this tremendous uh, tension between the state or the government and the church. So you have the Pope Leo in, uh, in Rome, and you have uh, the Emperor Ferdinand in Spain, and you have King George VIII in England, and you have all of these kings and monarchs all over Europe, and all of them are avowed Catholics, not because they believe, but because they have always been told that this is the way to get to heaven. So it's a mess. Uh, the, church, the people don't know the scriptures because they're not taught. Uh, most of them can't read anyway. The ones who will hold the scriptures, which are the priests and the bishops and the cardinals and the pope, uh, they hold them and interpret them in ways that would only give them more strength and more power and more money. And it was just a mess. Into that uh, strange mixture of government and religion. Remember, the, the emperor was literally made emperor by the pope. Okay? That would be like me saying, okay... I'd pick uh, Scott Tonkinson to be president of the United States. You know, 
That wouldn't work for either one of us, okay? Yes, I'm saying like that. No, no, you wouldn't want him president. Believe me, I know him well. And but it's like that's way too much power for the church, right? That's way too much power for the, and that's getting in bed with the government. And we still struggle with that today. So there was this tremendous mess all throughout Europe. Into that, uh, a young man who was a uh, uh, he has a PhD. Uh, he's very bright. And uh, his name is Martin Luther. In the fall of 1513, he has this doctor of theology. Martin Luther was lecturing to a group of young friars. And he was lecturing, of all things, from the Bible. From Romans 1.17. And as he spoke the words to these young friars, he said, uh, Romans 1.17 says, uh, The just shall live by faith. Now these friars are looking at each other and saying, What? That's in the Bible? Yeah, that's in the Bible. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And so one friar raised his hand and said, well, excuse me, sir, I have a question. Okay, what's your question? I've been told all my life by the church that the just shall live by obedience to the Pope. Well, Martin Luther says, well, I'm only telling you what the Bible says. And somebody else raised his hand. Now, wait, all my life I've been told that the just shall live by following the traditions of the church. Martin Luther says, ah, you know. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You, know, you figure it out yourself. And this series of, of questions and stirring in Martin Luther's soul uh, led to what we now call the 95 Theses in 1513 in Wittenberg and the Wittenberg Cathedral. And it was the beginning of the what? Protestant Reformation. Everything changed. I mean, when you look at what happened in the landscape in the next hundred years in Europe, it was amazing what was going on. This so stirred in the heart of this reformer, Martin Luther, and other parts of the of, of other parts of the world. And here, here's what was happening: the word of God was be, being believed. It was believed, not only believed, it was being lived. It was being spoken. It was being understood. The word of God is the thing that started to transform the lives of reformers and literally changed the world. Well, Martin Luther became a champion of the Reformation, as you know, and throughout Europe, everyone heard these cries from Martin Luther. Sole fide, sole gratia, sole biblia, sole Christa. You know, faith alone, grace alone, the Bible alone, Christ alone. And this was the call to all of Europe to wake up and look at what you are doing and recognize that God has something new. He's doing a new work. Now, then in January 1519, just three and a half years later, something shocking happened in Zurich, Switzerland. It was a large church called Great Minster. That was the name of the church. And Ulrich Zwingli caused a great commotion when he began preaching. This had never been done before since the disciples. He began preaching, of all things, from the Bible. He started in Matthew chapter 1. And for the next year, he preached from Matthew. And he just started doing that. These, these Swiss people would come to church. They would come from all over. For the first time, they were hearing the gospel of Matthew and Luke and Mark and John and the epistles of Paul. And it was just amazing. And it was extraordinary. And people were being saved. And everything was changing. And, and so what was happening in Germany with Martin Luther was happening in Switzerland with Ulrich Zwingli. Over the portal still to this day of the church in Great Minster in, in, in uh, Zurich, you can read these words. The Reformation of Ulrich Zwingli began here on January 1, 1519. And so, with John Calvin in France, John Knox in Scotland, 
Uh, the reading, preaching, understanding, and living of God's Word changed the world. It changed the world. When the Word of God, and it's not coincidentally that about 20 years after Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Gutenberg Door Cathedral, it, Gutenberg Door, <laughs> Wittenberg Door, I was going to talk, tell you about Gutenberg. In 1536, Gutenberg invented the printing press. It's not an accident. That for the first time, the Word of God was wanted to be made accessible to the common people, but they couldn't afford a Bible. They were all done by hand. Now, uh, after 1536, uh, people, common people, ordinary people, middle class people could afford the Bible. The Word of God changed everything with the Re- Reformation. 2,200 years before, before Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Knox, there lived another reformer by the name of Jeremiah. If that great prophet were alive today, as he was in pagan times, he would do what the Protestant Reformation did, and he would simply say it this way. My desire, my heart, is to proclaim and to preach the Word of God to the people and let the Word of God do its work in their hearts. Jeremiah chapter 7 contains one of the greatest Reformation sermons, in my opinion, the greatest Reformation, all apologies to Martin Luther, the greatest Reformation sermon ever preached and ever written. But it was not popular. I I remember after the first week I preached on Jeremiah, uh, one of our members came to me and said, I'm amazed that you found grace in the book of Jeremiah because Jeremiah's book just hammer away, just kind of say, if you guys follow those other gods, you know, boom, 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 boom. Jeremiah wrote this sermon and when he wrote it, he became the least popular man in Judah. <laughs> now, let me, let me, let's look at why. Before Jeremiah uh, was born, even, Manasseh was the worst king, <coughs> excuse me, Manasseh was the worst king the Hebrews had ever had. He was an evil man, and he presided over a corrupt government that reigned over Jerusalem for 55 years. He encouraged pagan worship that involved entire communities in sexual orgies. He installed cult prostitutes at shrines throughout the countryside. He imported wizards and sorcerers from Babylonia to enslave people with their magic. His capacity for inventing new forms of evil seemed endless. One day he placed his son on the altar in some black ritual of witchcraft and burned him alive as an offering to a pagan god. This was King Manasseh, king over Judah, king over God's people. 2 Kings 21.9, we read, Manasseh reduced them to more evil than the, than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh was worse than any other king who had ever lived. Jeremiah was born in the last decade of Manasseh's rule. This is a world in which Jeremiah was born and walked and lived and talked and played It was a dark world because God's people had altogether forgotten God. Everything was wrong. Everything was dark. Everything was black. Then Manasseh died. His son Ammon uh, succeeded him, but things didn't change. The evil continued in some new ways, but the people were fed up. Ammon was murdered. And when Ammon was murdered, his eight-year-old son, Josiah, was put on the throne. Thank God for that. Now begins one of the most remarkable chapters in the history of God's people. Somehow, in this boy king, Josiah, 
There was an innocence, an uncorruptible spirit, and a heart for God. And an eight-year-old kid. I just got through talking to uh, eight and nine-year-old kids in our, in, in, over here in the God Zone room. I, I, imagine one of our eight or nine-year-olds becoming king of Israel. So God used this boy king to bring reformation to the land. Years later, a priest by the name of uh, Hilkiah uh, uncovered an old book buried in the rubble of the flattened temple. And that old book, as we said other weeks, was God's word, the Torah. It was God's word to his people. The book was brought to Josiah, now a teenager, and he read it aloud before all the people of Israel. And this is what Josiah read in part. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord from the men of Ju- with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of covenant of the covenant, which had been found in the temples of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Whether it's Martin Luther, whether it's Hope Covenant Church in 2013, whether it's Jeremiah speaking through this beautiful boy king, Josiah, to the people of God. Reformation always. Please hear this. And if you know history, you know this. Reformation always begins with the hearing, the reading, the believing, and the living the Word of God. It always begins that way. So Josiah went to work. The reform was accomplished. Everything that a king's command could do was done. Conspicuous crime, gone. Witchcraft, forever gone. Immoral worship, all done. But here's the problem. Getting rid of evil does not make people good. <laughs> Getting rid of, of, of bad things and bad behavior does not make good, make good people. Now, we all know that, especially those of us who are in, <clears throat> in uh, 12-step programs. Uh, when you're in a 12-step program, which is a great ministry, by the way, if, if you have things critical about that, you probably haven't been around it for a long time. 12-step program started by AA back in the 1930s is an amazing program. But here's the, here's the problem with some of those programs, and it's this. They can help you stop the behavior. It doesn't change your heart. So only one thing that changes your heart, and that's Jesus Christ. That's why we have Celebrate Recovery and other Christian organizations. You talk to Stacy Myers, she'll tell you about her AA group and how she, she tells them her higher power is Jesus Christ. So stopping behavior is good, but it does not do anything beyond that. It does not transform the heart. And that's what Josiah discovered when he made all of those bad things and that behavior, bad behavior go away. Reformation was only skin deep. And so Jeremiah stands before the people to preach his temple sermon. And even though they had reformed their ways and there was no longer this black magic and all of that, even though all those, but the people of Judah were starting to slip back into a lack of love for God. Temples rebuilt. <clears throat> the worshipers are thronging to the temple because it's brand new. It's shiny. It looks so good. I mean, it's like a brand new mega church is opening up. 
And there's this great band and popular music and enthusiastic crowd. And they're going to the temple. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. It's so exciting and everything's wonderful. And people are going to church on Sunday and celebrating. And they're having Colombian food after the service. And everything is amazing. But all was not well. After the light of Josiah's reformation, Judah is slipping back into spiritual darkness. Josiah died in battle. Jehoaz died later. Judah was at another crossroads. And then Jeremiah preached the temple sermon and they did not like it. Here is what part of his temple sermon was about. As soon as Jeremiah finished telling the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say. By the way, this covers about 20 chapters in Jeremiah. Everything the Lord commanded him to say. The priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, You must die. Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh and the city will be desolate and deserted? Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city. You have heard it with your own ears. Come on, Jeremiah. We're going to church. This is the temple of the Lord. Temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. We love God. We love Jehovah. We love Yahweh. We're no longer doing black magic and we're no, no longer sacrificing our children. Come on, give us a break. We're being religious. We're doing the right thing. We're going to church. We're singing the songs. What else do you want us to do? And Jeremiah, for 20 chapters, pounds them and says, you are still following after other gods. He said, here's the problem. You're religious. Here's the problem. You're religious. You're trying to find God. You're trying to do God things. But your heart has not changed. Jeremiah said in no uncertain terms, Reformation is good. Josiah did a good thing in Reformation. But that doesn't change your heart. The only thing that will change your heart is transformation. And so he gave two powerful uh, examples in his sermon, his uh, his sermon uh, to the people. One was this. Here's the the two. The content of the temple sermon is summarized in these two points. Number one, religious observance cannot save. Never has, never will. For thousand years, the Holy Roman Empire ruled Europe and people were not getting saved because they didn't even know the good news of Jesus. Religion and they were religious Every one of them were religious. Religious observance cannot save you. And the second part of the temple sermon is this. Only a relationship with God manifested in obedience pleases God. Nothing else. Only a relationship with God that manifests itself. Now, I'm not talking about obeying God and then becoming a child of God. I'm talking about becoming a child of God. And out of that flows an obedient, humble, beautiful, godly heart. Only a relationship with God manifested in obedience pleases God. John Calvin, one of the reformers in the 16th century, said it this way. Sacrifices are of no importance or value before God. Unless those who offer them wholly devote themselves to God with a sincere heart. It's about the heart. It's not about religion. It's not about observing. It's not about the words that are spoken. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. And what was Jeremiah saying? This, do not trust in these deceptive words. Sometimes we, even as evangelicals, we get kind of religious. Can you imagine standing in the holy place of God and having for 20 chapters, for hours upon hours, Jeremiah just pounding away and saying, you still have not been transformed 
by the heart. You're still religious. They stood in the holy place. They were in the right place. They spoke the modern God talk. They knew all the evangelical legalese. legalese. Everything looked good. They were in the right place. They wore nice clothes. They said the right words. But they were not right because reform was good. But only transformation can change the heart. It was not enough. Religion was reduced to places and words and activities. But life in God is about love and mercy and obedience and a personal relationship with God. Just when Jeremiah expected the people to launch into a life of faith and passion with God, he finds them stupidly, stupidly repeating a religious slogan. It's the temple of the Lord. Temple of the Lord. Temple of the Lord. I love to sing hymns. I love to sing hymns. I love to sing hymns. God is my salvation. God is my salvation. God is my salvation. All of those are good things. But God says more than the words, more than the shouting, more than the temple observance. Where does your heart stand before God? There's a wonderful example uh, in the New Testament uh, about this, uh, this reformation, transformation that Jeremiah was calling them to. So here's the situation. Uh, Jesus is invited to speak in the temple. Now, it's a big deal because the Jews and the Pharisees and the religious leaders in the temple are his enemies. And all of a sudden, he's, he's invited to come speak in the temple. So he probably thought to himself, be careful, this might be a trick. <laughs> this might be a trick. So Jesus says, but that's cool. I'm willing to, anytime there's an audience, I'm willing to go and share about God's love. So I'll go and do that. So it's on the Sabbath. He's in the temple. And then just when he's getting ready to get up and give his sermon, um, the, uh, uh, the Pharisees usher in this guy with a withered hand. Okay, he had some kind of a disease where his hand had been withered all of his life and, set, and just plopped him right down in the front of the church. This is so awesome because the Pharisees knew Jesus and they knew that he was going to do something unexpected. So here's Jesus about ready to give his sermon, you know, and tell about all the stuff that the people should do. And here's this man in the front row with a withered hand. And now listen to uh, Mark chapter three, verses three to five. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. So the man stands up. Then Jesus asked them, not the man, but the Pharisees, those gathered, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them. Listen to this in anger. You say, why so angry, Jesus? Back off, you know, take it easy, Jeremiah. I mean, Jesus, right? And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was completely restored. This is one of the most powerful gospel messages in the Bible. In this one, three verses, this little short narrative, we see the heart of Jesus. We see the Pharisees were all consumed with how good does the temple look? Whether or not the bulletins were printed properly. There's no mistakes in the bulletin. And the sermon notes are perfect. And they were all concerned about all of those things. Are the lights good? Is the sound good? Uh, are all everything clean and sparkling and shiny, everything? And everything was about being there. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. And then this man with a withered hand that, by the way, wouldn't even be allowed to sit in the front row. He'd have to be out way out in the court with the other schleps, right? He was brought in and put in the front row. And the Pharisees said, now what are you going to do? Well, you know exactly what Jesus did. He said, you people, you are so religious. You're not worth a nickel. You are so religious. 
You know all the right things. You think you have all the answers. But here's the answer right here. The reason I came is not to save those who are already saved. I came to save the sick and the lost and the broken and the hurting. This is the man that I came to earth for. And he healed him. And in that moment, God said, don't you understand? In Jeremiah's day, he said, don't you understand? It's not about the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. It's so much more than that. It's having a passion and a love for people that are hurting. A passion and a love for people that don't know Christ to come to know Him. Not about whether or not the chairs are lined up correctly and the lights are on perfectly and everything else. It's about a person. It's about a relationship. It's not about religion. See, these Pharisees had their own agenda. They had no passion for God. They had no passion for others to come to faith. In fact, they didn't think that Gentiles had a right to come to Christ or to to their faith. They didn't believe in it. But Jesus told them in that stern, awkward, angry moment, you guys are religious and there is no place for religion in my kingdom. Wow. I think sometimes we kind of fall into that trap. I, I, I look out at your faces on Sunday mornings and here's, here's what I see. Almost to a person, and I love this. When, when we're preaching, when we're worshiping, one of the things I don't normally do is I don't normally see you worshiping because I'm sitting in the front row. And that way I won't be embarrassed by what I do, you know. When I was coming back in here, I just stood there for a moment and I just watched the people of God worship. It was beautiful. And it was so real and it was so alive. You see, what happens is that, that we come into this building not because uh, it's the best building on the block. It's not. I mean, if you want to go to a shiny building, it, this isn't it. I mean, we use this thing. We pound this thing hard with kids and youth and everything else. But if you want to come to a place where people are saying, you know what? My life's not working very well. My heart's breaking. My divorce is terrible. These things are happening to me. And I need God. I need Jesus. I don't know where to find him. Maybe I can find him here. This is a place you will find his love. This is a place you will find his grace. Coming to hear the Father. I see you on Sunday morning during the sermon. And here's what I see most, most, mostly is this. This kind of, this kind of physical leaning forward. God, is this a word for me? God, is this, is this something for me today? Is this something you want to do in my life? Is this something you want to change in my life? God, is there some, I see this leaning. You can see the Pharisees. They weren't leaning in. This is, the Pharisees were like this. I dare you, Jesus, to do something that's outside of our religious tradition. I dare you. Well, don't dare Jesus. It's <laughs> exactly what he did. No passion for the lost. No joy for those that come to Christ. Last Sunday at the second service, we had three people that raised their hand to receive Christ. And, and there was this hushed moment after the service. And I could almost hear the angels singing. Back to Jeremiah. He observed, he observed that the people were religious. They were reformed. They were religious, but they were stuck on things that all religions do to us. It's not about the right words and the places and the beliefs and the activities. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I go to church. I go to church. I'm born again. I'm born again. I've been baptized. I've been baptized. I belong to uh, the, 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 the coolest church in town. I, I do my daily devotions. I do my daily devotions. It's not about the list. But it's about loving God and loving people. All these things are good in themselves. But Jeremiah said, I have no confidence in any of these things to save you. 
Do not put your trust in these things. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3.3. Put no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul goes on in that passage a little bit later and says, here's the deal for me, Paul says. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. None of this temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. I do things right. I do things right. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. But I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what Jeremiah was trying to point the people of God to. Just over here. It's about a relationship with God. And someday you'll understand it. and You'll feel it even more powerfully when you hear about Jesus. But it's about relationship with God. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, Paul said. Reformation is about changing the way something looks on the outside. God desires transformation of the heart. Knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection. Religious observance cannot save, Jeremiah said in the temple sermon. Jeremiah 7.11 has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you. But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So the reformation of the city has happened. Now God desires transformation in the house of God. Now, the text takes a little bit different turn here. And as you study this week in uh, Jeremiah, you'll be picking up some of these nuances. But there's a wonderful little passage in 712 that goes like this. Uh, Jeremiah says to the people of Israel, now go to the place in Shiloh. And people are going, I've heard of Shiloh, but I don't really know what that means. What is this that we're supposed to see at Shiloh? Well, not much. Actually, it's just kind of a ruins. It's the place where the tabernacle used to be. Now, many years before the, the Israelites had set up this, it was called a tent of meeting. It was like a, a, it was kind of like camping, right? You know, tabernacle, you could move it from one place to another. This tent of meeting, and you look at Joshua 18 if you're interested in that. And it, it's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the Ark of the Covenant, those of you who've been around the Bible or watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, either one or both, you know that the, uh, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was, was kind of considered where the presence of God was. It was the Shekinah glory. Uh, in that was the, the Ten Commandments and uh, one of them broken because Moses kind of got ticked off. And it was uh, Aaron's rod and it was some other things in there that uh, represented the actual real presence of God. So the, the, the Ark of the Covenant always represented the real presence of God. See, today in the New Testament time, this side of Jesus, we have Jesus in our hearts. All the time, that side of Jesus, the Old Testament, God would have to come down from heaven to be with people. So we have it much better because Jesus is in us. Well, that Ark of the Covenant was kind of a reminder that someday you're going to have God with you all the time. And so that was placed in this tent of meeting in Shiloh. And that's what this was about. But uh, Jeremiah was saying, but, but you abandoned it. You abandoned this place of God. You took the Ark of the Covenant out to fight the Philistines like a, a traveling sideshow. You know, you, you took that out like a, like a lucky charm. You know, you're toting the, the Ark of the Covenant all over the place trying to, you know, help you win battles and stuff. And, and you've abandoned the place where God was. Shiloh means literally God was abandoned. Shiloh. Shiloh thus represents the absence and abandonment of God and the end of worship. And Jeremiah says, You need to go there and remember 
Because that's exactly what could happen again right here. The ruins of Shiloh stand as a warning to Israel and to you and to me. I can't tell you how many modern day Shilohs there are. There are Shilohs all around the pre post-Christian West. For instance, in, in Oxford, England, down the Cowley Road, there is a large Methodist church where revival meetings used to be held. Now it's a full-time bingo parlor. Shiloh. It's where God was abandoned. Uh, down uh, the Headington Road, there's a Baptist church that has become an Islamic mosque. There's a Shiloh in Cape May, New Jersey, called the Admiral. Admiral. It's this immense Christian conference center used to dominate the Cape May skyline, but the Admiral is, has been destroyed. The property is now subdivided into housing lots. There are dozens of these Shilohs in Philadelphia. It's a Shiloh at 15th and Locust where the first Presbyterian church used to stand. Now it's a parking garage. In other words, they paved first Presbyterian and put up a parking lot. Another church, Presbyterian church building still stands at 34th and Chestnut. It's not a church anymore, though. It's a creative motions dance studio. There's a lot of examples of Shilohs in our world. Places where God has simply been abandoned. But here's, here's the message of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, I, I want you to go to Shiloh, but I don't want you to think so much in terms of a place. I want you to think in terms of, um, of your heart. Of your heart. Was there a time when your heart was so warm towards God? It was so exciting. I, there are so many stories I could tell you about new people in our church that are new Christians and how exciting their faith is and how real and how thrilled they are and how they, they're constantly leaning forward, whether it's at church or at Bible study or whatever. And there's this, this sense of, man, God, I need to learn. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty for righteousness. This kind of leaning forward and I'm so hungry. But I've known so many Christians in my life that have a Shiloh heart, a heart that's abandoned God. Now, hear this, please. God never abandons you. Okay, please hear that. But people that have abandoned God. Once my heart was warm towards the Savior. Once I loved Jesus and I tried to serve him with all my heart, but now my heart has grown cold. I, I have a Shiloh heart. A man came to see me last week and, and he confessed this very thing that I'm talking about today. He said, I, there was a time when I felt like God was calling me into the ministry. But now, I I don't even know if I believe in God. It's a Shiloh heart. Yesterday, we had a a beautiful wedding here at Hope. It was Scott Brown, Lori Dawson, uh, two people from our church, um, met, fell in love, courted here for two and a half years, and then they got married yesterday. It was beautiful. But let let me talk to you a minute about, about weddings. This is from kind of my perspective. Weddings are easy. Marriage is a little bit tougher. The couple, and I'm talking talk about Scott and Lori, but anybody, uh, the couple want to plan a wedding. And I meet with them for six weeks for premarital counseling. So the couple wants to plan a wedding. They're very anxious to do that. I'm much more interested in planning a marriage. Uh, they want to know where the bridesmaids will stand. I, I want to develop a plan for forgiveness. They want to discuss the music of the wedding. I want to talk about the emotions and the the rhythms of the marriage, the spiritual life and light in the marriage. I, I come on, I can do a marriage twenty minutes with my eyes closed. 
I've done 250 weddings in my life. But let me tell you something. Marriages, that's a lot tougher. A lot tougher. Sometimes weddings are impressive. Sometimes they're emotional. Sometimes they're expensive. We weep at weddings. We laugh at weddings. We take care uh, to be at the right place at the right time and say the right words. Where people stand is important. The way people dress is significant. Every detail. This flower, that candle is memorable. All the same, weddings are easy. But marriages, they're complex. They're difficult. In marriage, we work out the every detail of the promises and commitments spoken at the wedding. In marriage, we develop the long and rich life of love that the wedding announces. The event of the wedding without the life of marriage doesn't amount to much. In fact, 56% of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. It hardly matters that a man and woman dress up for their wedding clothes when you're in divorce court. How many times have you heard people say, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married. But yet their heart is dead towards their spouse. Their heart is broken. If there was no daily love shared, if there's no continuing tenderness, no attentive listening, no inventive giving or creative blessing, the marriage will die. That is exactly the analogy that Jeremiah shares with his people. You guys are going on saying, the wedding, the wedding, the wedding. It's so wonderful to be in the house of God. But God is much more concerned with your heart. Your heart that is tender towards God. Your heart that is open toward the Spirit. Your heart that is receiving the Word of God on a daily basis. Your heart, your heart, your heart. Josiah's reform was a wedding. Jeremiah's concern was for the marriage. His concern was for the hearts of his people. And let me ask you this one question as we close this morning, and it's this. What's the condition of your heart today? I know some of you are bearing great news in that regard. You are feeling and experiencing your life in Jesus that is so rich. And so long, it's like a, a marriage, like Sherry and I have been married for 42 years. It's like a, a marriage, we're just talking about this. We always talk about this after weddings, or at least Sherry does, and I listen. And, and uh, okay, you know, how can we make our, we've been married for 42 years. We've had amazing times together. How can we make it even better? See, that's the heart for God that Jeremiah wants. And so many hearts are like that Shiloh heart that simply shuts down. It abandons God. God wants us to have a heart that is alive. A heart that is real, a heart that is ready to receive the word of God. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, there have been times in my life when I have truly experienced a Shiloh heart. You've never abandoned me, but I have abandoned you so often it makes me shudder to think. But like one of the songs we sing, your grace is enough. Over and over and over again, your grace is enough. And so, Father, my prayer this morning is that each one of us would take inventory of the condition of our heart, not the condition of our religion. I go to church, I go to church, I go to church, but the condition of our heart. Father, if there are those here this morning who have that Shiloh heart, a heart where they have literally abandoned God and turned their back on him, 
I pray that there would be repentance and restoration. And that is just a prayer away. And Father, for those who have hearts that maybe have never even received the life and the love of God, I pray that they would experience by faith a transforming relationship with Jesus that is simply a prayer away. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins and make me brand new. And Father, for others whose perhaps hearts are still warm towards God, but there's just little things that are causing them to drift away, I, I pray that they would come back to the full attention and the full grace that is available to each one of us every day and in every way. So Father, I just want to give us a moment of silence right now. And to do some personal spiritual work with you. Um, like one of the kids said earlier, uh, you know, God's right here. I'm here. I'm listening. And so I pray, Father, that the people of your church here at Hope Covenant Church now, that you would hear their prayers. Oh, Father, how um, thankful we are that as your children, we can come to you and we can renew our hearts. I pray now, Father, that as we uh, close this service, that you would not allow us to let this word stray far from our hearts. That we would wrestle with this, that we would embrace this news every day. And that we would constantly say, Lord, guard me from a heart of Shiloh and give me a heart of grace. Take away this heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Father, we don't desire reformation. We desire transformation by your spirit. And thank you for Hope Covenant Church and for their hearts for you. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to receive our morning tithes and offerings now. And as we do, I would just like to invite those of you who are brand new to our church today. Uh, we're not interested in your money today. We are just so glad that you've come to worship with us. Everyone else, uh, part of the offering, part of the sacrifice that we give is a sacrifice of our wealth. And we invite you to give generously and abundantly to the work of the Lord at Hope Covenant Church. Ushers, if you will, please come forward.